Welcome to the weekend edition of The Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoke Podcast. When I first got my farm out here in the country six, seven years ago now, I had this little sign made, and it's a it's a, a couplet from the, the poet and satirist uh, Juvenal. And it says, you ask me what I get out of my country place, the profit gross and net is never having to see your face. And uh, I I don't know, I like that part of the reason we moved out of the country was to have a quieter life, more introverted, philosophical, uh, studious life. Um, And it's been all that and so much more. Um, But it's also given me, paradoxically, a a better connection to to nature, which the Stokes talked about, and, and to other people and to humanity. There's something about working the land, uh, interacting with nature, um, raising animals, just watching the sun rise and set on the same little tank we have behind our house that that gives you a connection to generations and generations and generations of people who've lived a lifestyle in that specific land. The, the farmers who owned it before us or the ranchers who owned it before us, the Native Americans who, 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 uh, traveled these plains before them and the animals who lived here before, you know, uh, Homo sapiens made it to America. There's just a, a sort of a profound connection. And as it happens, 
you know, the, the Stoics were often farmers, certainly outdoors. Uh, as I talk about in today's interview, Marcus Aurelius, some of his most beautiful passages are about nature. Um, Cato the Elder, that would be uh, Cato the Younger's great-great-grandfather, his essay on agriculture is one of the oldest documents that we have in the Latin language. And it's all about how to be not just a farmer, but a profitable, successful farmer. And it's a fascinating document. We've done a bunch of Daily Stoke emails about it over the years. Um, so anyways, when this new book came out, this book, How to Be a Farmer, An Ancient Guide to Life on the Land, uh, by the Princeton University Press, whose series I have raved about. Uh, I carry How to Be a Leader here in the uh, Painted Porch Bookstore, their translation of Horace, um, How to Be Content, their Seneca and Epictetus series uh, on uh, anger and freedom I, and death. I, I, we carry all these books because we love them. And if you haven't read them, you should. You can check them out at thepaintedporch.com. I'll link them in the show notes. But this new one, uh, I was really excited not just to read, but to interview the author. M.D. Um, Usher is a professor of classical languages and literature at the University of Vermont, but he also happens to be a farmer. And they own and operate the Works and Days Farm, which is itself a little classical illusion you may or may not have got. They raise uh, lamb and, and chickens, and they even make maple syrup there in Vermont. And I wanted to have a conversation about farming, uh, about nature. Remember the Stokes talk about living in accordance with nature. And I felt like there was no one better to have this conversation with than Professor Usher. So I was very excited to have this. And uh, I am recording this the day after Thanksgiving in between two days of deer hunting. First day, not so successful. I'm hoping tomorrow will be a little bit more successful hoping to get a nice buck to get us through a good chunk of the year. And then I always like to uh, have the deer processed and, and give out as much as I can to friends and family. Uh, you might not be pro hunting, but I do. And I did write an essay about this that we'll link in the notes as well about the sort of stoic connection to hunting, why I think everyone should at least do it once. And if you're getting angry about this, I totally understand, but but read the essay first. I think you'll like it. And read this new book, How to Be a Farmer, An Ancient Guide to Life on the Land. There's a wonderful little chunk in here from Musonius Rufus. There's stuff in here from Cato the Elder and a bunch of other fellow travelers along with the Stoics. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Professor Usher, and I think you will too. I loved the book. I live on uh, 40 acres outside uh, of Austin, Texas. So I'm always interested in what the ancients have to say about country life. Um, yeah. I thought I'd start us in the most controversial place uh, we could possibly start with, which is um, reading about Cato the Elder. He is this sort of fascinating, he, he writes one of the first essays on agriculture, one of the earliest things we have surviving in the Latin language, uh, books that is, uh, seems to be this sort of uh, frugal, efficient, down-to-earth guy. And then you're reading about him, and Plutarch tells us about uh, his attitude towards his slaves, which oh, yeah. I, I found that to be uh, striking, to say the least, uh, basically that he would sort of wear them out, grind them down into dust, and then sell them to get rid of them. Even uh, and Plutarch, uh, who didn't seem to have much in the way of a problem with slavery, even he found this to be reprehensible. I was just—I thought we'd riff on that for a minute. 
Yeah, well, you're right about that. When they're worn out, you throw them away. And in fact, uh, the, the kind of terminology he uses to talk about slaves is similar to the terminology that Columella uses when he talks about donkeys in the in the book. Um, so they're tools, right? They're the they're a useful tool on the on the farm. But no, it is reprehensible, and it's sort of a you know white noise running in the background of all these texts because Roman farming was uh, you know a slave industry, um, really at, at all periods. However, if I can, you know, put in a quick however, um, you do see uh, people decrying the practice. I mean, not only do you see, you know, bona fide Stoics decrying slavery as an institution, like Seneca, his famous letter of, you know, they're serui, but he says, immo homines, they're, they're, you know, they're men too, people too. Um, but uh, you find people like uh, Pliny the Elder talking about, uh, these latifundia that were staffed by staffed that were run by slaves and and saying that you know they're the ruin of of the republic they're the ruin of the empire that we we now live under so you know there there are voices that were of discontent to to the institution but you know there was no uh, there was Spartacus but I mean there was no nobody to say definitively we need to get get you know get rid of this um, but. It struck me as as a, an analogous to the the, the founding of uh, America. You sort of have these two agrarian societies that are deeply philosophical, and you have people sort of questioning the institution. And then you know Washington, just like Cato, sort of famously gets down and works in the field, so he knows how backbreaking the labor is. They all have this sense that, or or often have this sense that there is something reprehensible about it, and and they would look at the people who were particularly cruel and they would see that as a moral evil and yet sort of all uh, for 2000 years, essentially leave the institution as it was. Well, thank goodness that the ancients had one, one up on us in that regard and that slavery was never a racial institution. It was never a racial issue uh, at all in, in antiquity. It was a residual of war. And so, you know, you and I, Ryan, could find ourselves as slaves, you know, just by being in the wrong wrong place at the wrong time. Polybius, you know, was a slave and he worked for the Scipios and wrote a great you know, piece of Roman history in Greek. So it, it, it was conquest based. It was conquest based. And, and but it was also universal. It wasn't just the Romans. I mean, I think slavery or slavers might be like the second oldest profession, if you know what I mean. Sure. I mean, it's, it's been around since the dawn of. Uh, you know, Mesopotamia and before. And yeah, you look at the Spartans, right? And it's this sort of fascinating uh, warrior culture and it only exists because it sits atop a system of exploitation and plunder uh, effectively. Right. And they had the, of course, they had a whole institutionalized form of slavery of their own. It That's what like, I mean. Right. It wasn't chattel slavery, but the helots. That basically provided them fed the fed the fed the uh, war engine of Sparta. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah. I just thought, I thought it was fascinating because you have these people, it, and actually, I've talked about this before. But there's this fascinating letter that Jefferson writes uh, about sort of comparing uh, American slavery to Roman slavery, and he mm -hmm. says, you know, where is he's like, where is our Epictetus? Where is our Terence? You know, his mm -hmm. his, his rationalization was like that that the Romans, they had like better slaves uh, because, uh, and, and that, that he was sort of 
trying to rationalize the inferiority of African slaves at, to justify the the horrendous cruelty of chattel slavery. Um, it did it did it did feel like the Romans were more of two minds about the slavery than than you know two thousand years later the the Americans were that that the Americans had sort of diluted themselves a little bit more about it and maybe this goes into the new world and the diseases and they seem to have made a more biological argument for it which obviously does not hold up well right yeah I mean it's uh, again it's something that you, you can't you can't shake you can't deny but um you know thankfully we've out, we've outgrown it now we have woofers <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes, for people who don't know what that is, uh, it's a magical way that anyone who owns uh, a farm or property can get free labor uh, by by accepting volunteers on your on your farm, which is actually how I got into it. My wife and I were thinking about doing it, and and she said, you know what? Before we do something like this, I'm going to actually go work on a farm. And she ended up working on a, a farm that's now uh, owned that that is now our neighbor out out here. That's great. Wow. That was a smart, smart move. And uh, I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> well, let's talk about the something uh, less uh, negative than slavery. Let's talk about the philosophical magic of composting. That was one of my favorite chapters in the book. <laughs> Good. Thank you. I like that. Too. It was fun to do. It was fun to think of it in those terms. Um, so you're, you're referring to the passage of Lucretius from the De Rerum Natura. I think it's book two. No, it's book one. I can't even remember. Early on in the De Rerum Natura, where um, he uses the example uh, of, you know, uh, regenerative uh, cycles of nature uh, to illustrate the point that the, the philosophical point of uh, atomism and Epicureanism in particular, that nothing comes from nothing or returns to nothing. So the idea is that you've got just a whole big bunch of energy uh, or stuff out there, if you want to look at it that way with atoms, small little bits of stuff, but that um, there's it, it, nothing's lost or nothing's gained uh, in organic transfer in this universe that we live in. So, you know, uh, uh, Lucretius uses that, uh, that, that argument and he looks to farming in particular and to, you know, the soils and um, that, you know, Things are just broken down into their constituent parts and become something new, just like you and I will be broken down into our constituent parts uh, and be pushing up daisies later. Um, that's essentially the argument. And uh, it just dawned on me like this is a philosophy of compost. It's a, you know, it's a closed loop, dynamic, but closed loop regenerative system um, that really represents what the biosphere is all about. And it's remarkable that that I find remarkable that, you know, Epicureanism, atomism in general, kind of saw that even if they were wrong that you know everything was reducible to substance as opposed to energy um uh, it, it was a pretty it's a keen insight i think on their part um i think they they trumped the stoics on that uh, in my view <laughs> no it's it's pretty incredible that yeah we're talking about this slave society that's so backwards in so many ways and without basically any scientific tools whatsoever they're also writing poems about how the universe is made up of atoms and they they get they get something so right even though they they weren't totally correct about it but they were largely right you know thousands of years before we had any real way of proving it one way or another right there's two ways to look at that i mean I, at least i find people look at it two different ways some people will say like wow they must have you know had some sort of secret insight or knowledge you know to have them think that way but uh, I look at it uh, more pragmatically 
I, uh, the, a book I, I published just before this one um, for Cambridge was called Plato's Pigs uh, and Other Ruminations. And essentially what it is, is a, it's the backstory of sustainability and complexity science in ancient thinking and not just philosophy, but also like, you know, uh, religious systems, how they are sort of systems uh, oriented. But um, so the, the power of analogy of, of thinking analogically, I mean, that just does not go away. I mean, analogies are not perfect, but if you have a analogic mind and you think that way and you cultivate, you know, analogies, you can stumble upon something that is accurate because um, everything is, it, it's about a relationship and a, and a ratio. And if everything is connected, you're bound to kind of stumble on something um, uh, that's close to the truth. You know? so. Well, and that goes to the analogy you made, which is that the same thing that happens to our plants and food and, and uh, you know, a tree that falls in the woods is also what will happen to us. And so there's this sort of profound philosophical uh, implication for coming to this idea of regeneration. Right. And it's a source of comfort for the Epicureans that, you know, you don't have to fear death because, you know, nothing bad's going to happen afterwards. And it also is a, a positive value that, you know, you should enjoy life, you know, while you have it, gather your rosebuds while you may do so temperately, right? Not, uh, you know, it's not a, a pleasure seeking hedonist viewpoint that, you know, we commonly associate with Epicureanism, but it's, it's something that, um, that uh, we can just enjoy our friends, uh, enjoy the life and time we have, and we should, we must. Has, has living out in nature and, and, and raising livestock particularly, has it changed your relationship with death? I, I have found, I think that was the thing that surprised me most, just like, even if you take really good care of everything, even if you're on top of it, I mean, I had to, I had to kill a possum like three days ago that was, you know, uh, in my chicken coop in the middle of tearing some of my pet chickens to shreds and just the sort of the the ordinariness of life and death in the sort of agricultural life. It's just so I mean, obviously, it would have been commonplace in, in the ancient world as well. But but it's I think so in such stark contrast to our antiseptic lives in, let's say, the city that I think it does force you to chew on some of this stuff a bit. Absolutely. And, um, and the only way you're going to get it in the modern world is if you like, you choose it. I mean, because we are so technologically disconnected from nature and those processes, and it's almost like an ideological uh, decision you've got to make that I'm going to experience this because I know that this is what it, part of what it means to be a human being. And, and I, I need this, you know, whether you become a farmer and it becomes your profession, that's another matter. But, you know, there's a day when everybody knew how to kill a chicken to eat it if you were going to eat it. Sure. And, and a killing a possum, you know, over a chicken wouldn't bother. <laughs> you wouldn't think twice about it. Of course you would do that. Um, you know, once upon a time, people were, were pragmatic and they lived much more you know, closely to, again, the whole life cycle, um, life and death, both. Um, so to answer your the front part of your question is that, uh, yes, uh, being doing this farming, uh, we raise sheep. Um, you definitely see it all the time. Um, you, you, I mean, the moment when uh, a lamb and, and, and a you, a mother, you, is most susceptible to death is at that moment of birth, which is like hugely paradoxical, right? Sure. That's when they're both in. in, in Talk in, about in, regeneration. Exactly. So, but, but it's also the most beautiful moments, right? It, you, you, you know, 
that, that ewe's got the genetic uh, memory to, nope, we call it instinct, knows how to lick that lamb off. The lamb knows how to respond and find the udder. It's like, you look at it and it's like a miracle, but it could all go south in like, you know, five minutes, right? Depending right. on, you know, whatever. And then sometimes things happen where, you know, uh, mothers reject their young. I mean, that's not like a freak thing of nature. That happens a lot. Right. And, and I've always thought like, hmm, is that just bad genetics? Is it just a bad mother? And do we have to call that you because, you know, she just doesn't have that instinct well, good and well enough to, 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 you know, to warrant keeping her. And I've come around to the, the view that actually, I think, I think they know what they're capable of. I think that what happens when, a, when a, a mother rejects a, uh, a baby, a, a offspring, is that she knows what her carrying capacity is. Like she's kind of aware, like, I don't think I've got enough milk for that. Or I'm like super exhausted after that particularly difficult <laughs> birth. Yeah. And, and it's like, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, a calculation that she's making. So um, anyway, when you're involved in farming, you, how would I else I have learned that that's, that's just anecdotal. That's not a scientific, you know, <laughs> statement that I just made, but it's, um, but it's something, how else would you come to it? And how else could you, you know, reorient your way, reorient your way of thinking about these things, unless you were in, ensconced in it. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoke and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic, code SPACE80. And then to go to the, the point about uh, Cato and his relationship with the slaves, you then sort of get this weird insight into like, there's this financial component, right? You're like, how much am I going to spend like whether it's on veterinary care or time and energy, right? Like your decision of like, should we call this lamb because it's not a good mother? There's this sort of weird uh, element where you're forced to make these decisions that are sort of matters of life and death in some cases. Um, 
that, yeah, in, in, you know, outside of, I don't know, the army or the upper echelons of politics, people are just not ordinarily in a position to make. You know, we've we've deferred that authority elsewhere. And suddenly you're the one that decides, hey, is it worth, you know, I had a, I had a, I bought some cows uh, when we bought our place that came with some cows that the person had uh, who had the property before us had run. And, you know, they sort of told us they were much younger than they actually were. And, uh, you know, uh, it turns out, you know, they're very, very old. And then you got to make a decision. Hey, are you going to spend, you're going to call a vet, a vet out to put this very old sick cow down? Are you going to let it starve to death? Or am I going to have to go out there and dispatch this animal who's eaten out of my hand, you know, uh, personally? And, and suddenly, again, life and death isn't this abstract thing or this thing that happens to you and you feel sad about it, but it's a thing that you're an active participant in. And that's a whole other element. Totally true. It sounds like you already know how to be a farmer. These are some of the, the, the things that really distinguish, you know, the hobbyist from somebody who, who really does it. Uh, and, and must do it. Um, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of, you know, you you know about the Stoics, there's a whole bunch of necessity involved in farming, you know, like, yes. all, like this massive, you know, oppressive necessity that you you just, you have to face and you have to do. Um, but the, the notion of profit, and you write that as perverse as it is to our way of thinking today and unacceptable as it is, you know, because Cato is looking at his slaves as as tools and as you know, instruments, instrumenti, instrumentum is what instrumenta is what he calls them. Um, of course, they're dispensable, you know, like any tool, once it's worn out, you throw it away. Now, that's, that's you know, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's awful way to think about it. Yes. Human being. But um, the thing about profit that you mentioned is also something um, people fail to see. And actually, frankly, I don't engage with myself uh, to the same degree that a, re- a real farmer will have to, because sure. I have a day job, right? right? I write books and I teach classes. I'm really happy for that day job, but we're we're bigger than just a hobby farm, so we you know it doesn't. But the the word for profit in Latin, you may know this, is, is fructus, which means fruit. So for a farm to be fruitful, fructuosus means for it to be profitable. And the ancients were really down on bad farming. I mean, they were. I mean, you know, the, the modern Italians are already kind of food chauvinists and kind of like, you know, landscape chauvinists in some ways. Like right? they're very, very regional, particular about stuff. Um, and that's a compliment, by the way, not a put down for Italians. Sure. The, the Romans were the same thing. They looked at they looked at property that was unused and they thought this is a waste. You know, in fact, that's that's what they called it, a, a, a wasteland. Um, and so we have we have that kind of that view on the part of the Romans that, you know, land is meant to be managed and used, not exploited, but used uh, sort of in a cooperative way to produce fructus, which is food and profit. <laughs> no, to go to one, one other point about this life and death that I thought was interesting is so uh, it's deer season here in Texas. And so my sister was visiting for Thanksgiving and, and uh, I, I'm, I went yesterday. I didn't see anything. I'm going to go probably tomorrow. Um, and I said, Hey, you should, you should come with me. Just come sit in the deer stand. We'll spend a couple hours together and maybe we'll get a deer. And she goes, ah, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to see, like, I don't, I don't want to touch a dead animal is basically what she said. And I was like, you know, I just watched you spend three hours holding a dead Turkey all day, you know, uh, cooking it and prepping it as if it was, uh, very different than what I'm about to go do out in the pasture. And in fact, you know, this deer 
which which roams freely and wildly on the property because they don't have high fence um, is probably and 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 certainly the way I'm dispatching it is far more humane and natural and uh, and 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 um, timeless than than this factory farmed turkey that we bought even though you know we tried to buy something you know that that checks the various boxes and so it is interesting how we it's not that we think we're above it we just don't want to know about it right we just sort of detach ourselves from it and then act as if that sort of removes our culpability but we're fine to have other people do it in our names uh, yeah, uh, this uh, woman, named, woman named Alexis uh, Shotwell wrote a book called Against Purity, uh, came out a couple of years ago, and I use it in the other book I, I just mentioned to you, um, Plato's Pigs, where she, she basically says, that, yeah, that's, the, that's like the Western European, white Western European American uh, problem, is that we, we, we think we can live a life free of, you know, toxins and, and a completely, you know, uh, antisepticized life. Um, and we, I mean, you kind of can with, 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 again, with, with the technologies that we have, but, but it's, it's a, it's a false life. It's a false consciousness and it's a, and it's, and it's not going to, it's not going to get you anywhere. In fact, it's going to be harmful in the end because you get, you know, uh, defamiliarized from, from what makes us human. I mean, we're animal people are animals too. Um, and, um, so yeah, what you're describing is, is interesting, um, you know, I, I really I think that I've always I've always thought this, but I'm, I'm thinking about it more recently that, you know, the ancients were, you know, they were earthier than we are. They were closer to both the perils and prospects of their environments uh, in, in pretty much every respect. I mean, you know, um, they, they, they saw that saw death. They were agents of, of death. Um, they, uh, you know, they were closer to all these things and they had a just a. I think it, I think it yields a sensitivity in a in a strange way to to describe it a sensitivity once you once you know what that is like having to kill an animal or uh, dealing with death on the farm which happens all the time you you actually don't become desensitized to it you just kind of become you realize it for what it is and it gives you kind of an outlook that I would just describe as um, you know uh, just uh, the ability to react. Uh, uh, sensibly and um, uh, you know earnestly, carefully. I don't know what, what the right word is. No, I agree. It's you sort of it, when you feel it, it's like you're connecting with something that was always there. Like I, su- I suppose it's a very sort of primal or uh, uh, essential part of who we are. So, like when when you when you go hunting, let's say, or you have to dispatch an animal on the farm or whatever, there is this sort of unfamiliarity, this sort of you know the, the the nerves of it or whatever, and then then you also I think as as it goes on though you, you're like, not that I'm meant to do this, but you're like I'm more familiar with this than perhaps I would have imagined I would be. Well, there are people who say like once a hunter gatherer, always a hunter gatherer. I mean, yeah, we just sort of sublimate sublimate that in other ways. So. Uh, is it better to then be just a hunter gatherer? Uh, probably, you know, in, at least to be at least to know how to do it. Um, yes. And um, so that's uh, that's really interesting. But anyway, well, go ahead. I was just going to say that that's you know, we we got into farming for ideological reasons. I mean, it wasn't just we we weren't born into it. Um, 
And uh, my wife's from Manchester, England. She's a city girl. I didn't grow up with that, but we, we, we were very intentional, like, you know, in a Peruvian kind of way, deliberate about wanting to make this connection that you're, you, we've been talking about for the past 20, 10 minutes here. And, um, and that has been the, I think that's been the, the best takeaway from farming. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's developed, it's kind of, it's been developmental uh, for, for me as a person. I think I'm a, probably a better person for it. I'm certainly more patient than I ever used to be in my life because you can't make a donkey go anywhere that doesn't want to go or even a cow or sheep. Sheep will go the way you don't want them to go. So, you know, you just can't, you can't yell at them. You, know, you can't beat them with a stick. It, 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 you know, that doesn't, none of that is works. Um, and you just have to learn to kind of cooperate, you know, cooperate with them. So this idea of man dominating nature Ah, I think that's kind of a myth too. You've got to cooperate with nature. Otherwise you get nothing out of it. Well, na nature is sort of the logos. Nature is the rhythm and you're connecting to it and going along with it. And maybe you can direct it a little bit one way or another, but you're, it is a reminder of who's in charge. It's true. That's a good way to put it. Tracking is, we just talked about hunter-gatherers. Tracking is a great example of that. You have to kind of, when you, like the Kalahari Bushman or whatever, tracking an animal, you have to be, you have to cooperate with all the signs that you're seeing and put them all together and you have to be patient. And it, you can be, you know, this persistence tracking can take, you know, days before you, you get your, your quarry. So uh, that, that's, that is character building. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to talk about donkeys in a second, but I think when people hear that you're you're uh, operating this farm, um, I imagine one of the reactions is that that's somehow very different or unusual for a philosopher to do, uh, which is, I think, an, an interesting, I don't want to say indictment, but it kind of is an interesting indictment or at least statement about where philosophy has gone, because in the ancient world, they would have been seen as like this. One of my favorite chapters in the book, and I think it's one of the only ones that actually is directly from a Stoic. You have Musonius Rufus saying that, uh, and for people uh, listening, Musonius Rufus is Epictetus's uh, philosophy teacher. Um, Musonius Rufus basically says, there is no better profession for a philosopher than uh, a farmer. Uh, specifically, I think talks about shepherds as being, a, a you know, even, even down further in the types of farmers. But Talk to me about the connection between philosophy and farming. Okay. Uh, well, um, I'll just let me just say about uh, Musonius. What, what he, he the, the, the two main things he says that that um, farming is good for you for is that a it you it even though it involves physical work, um, even though right uh, it involves physical work, it's not the kind of work that uh, will distract you from ruminating and thinking about uh, all the things you need to think about to be become a better person, you know? Uh, to, um, so um, it provides that kind of time for self-reflection and cultivating the mind. You know, again, paradoxically, you work with your body, but it, that work is kind of frees you to work with it, uh, to kind of cultivate the mind. And the other thing he says that's good about it is that you're kind of on the spot and, and you're also under, under somebody's watchful eye. In other words, Usually farming is some, somehow a cooperative adventure. It involves other people. And, and particularly he talks about uh, uh, you know, the, the, the teacher and the student working out in the fields together. Well, you know, if you get pissed off or you show impatience or you show 
lack of character or if you show laziness or uh, intolerance of, of somebody else's faults, well, it's on full display. You're gonna, you, people are going to see it. So it, it kind of holds you accountable in a, in a way. And I see this with my wife. I mean, she's a better person than I am. You know, she will, you know, I mean, she's, she's got the patience of Job and she has that just by nature, that kind of cooperative approach to everything. I'm more of a, let's just get this over with and fix it and do it and go on to the next thing, whatever it is. And, you know, I've learned really from her how awful, you know, some of my attitudes are. And it, where does it come out? It doesn't really come out in my human relationships. It comes out in, in interacting with the animals when you get like impatient or you. Because they know. can feel the energy, right? They can, they react to the energy and the actions you're taking. And yeah, yeah. I've, I've driven cows through a fence because I wasn't taking my time. I got frustrated. And now it's like, now I got to spend six hours fixing this fence. All right. So yeah. You, I, that, anyway, so that's um that's one thing. The, the other thing that um and it's not it's not even a, a Greco-Roman idea per se, though it does have some resonance with Stoicism. Um, that I get out of farming is this notion of like dharmic detachment. So in other words, you do your like in the Bhagavad Gita, right? Arjuna doesn't doesn't he's terrified and he, he he's you know uh, repulsed by the notion that he has to kill his cousins on the battlefield. And then Krishna comes down and tells him, you know, well, and he gives us a long discourse about you need to do you, what your duty is in life, whatever that is. For him, it's a warrior. Arjun is a warrior. And so you need to fulfill that duty in life, but you need to act with detachment. So in other words, you need to be kind of uh, emotionally detached from the activity that you do. Uh, or maybe psychologically detached. Doesn't mean you're going to be a robot or anything like that, but you have to actively cultivate this notion of being detached from the results of action. You know, do it with all your your might. Farming teaches you that like nothing else because the outcomes are so unpredictable. Whether you're a crop farmer, depends on the weather, or you're an animal farmer, also depends on the weather, but it depends on so many different things. I mean, sheep 101 is like whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And a sheep wants to die. That's the first given. The sheep will want to die. I mean, so you're trying to prevent that. You do everything you can, but then still you come up short. So uh, to be able to cope with that, uh, you have to, I, I found that you just have to have this, you know, you do everything you can, you do it well, you do it to the best of your ability. You, you make sure you close that gate. You make sure you're thinking in, in the future, you're, you're planning properly, you're not lazy, you're not forgetting, you're not, not forgetting, but you're not putting something off, procrastinating. But at the same time, you still just can't think that it's a guarantee that it's going to come out the way you want it to, because it won't. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. You could say, right, the obstacle is the way I've always been a student of failure, of things that go wrong. It's so easy to celebrate things going right, but we can learn a lot from when it doesn't go right. Each week, David Duchovny chats with guests like Ben Stiller and Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure, fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm just about to go into the studio to record my latest audiobook. My wife and I have been listening to audiobooks. We've been listening to audiobooks in the car as a family just to keep our kids off screens because Audible is amazing. And Audible is also the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next to listen recommendations to satisfy every type of thriller listener. If you want breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that will enthrall you, even brand new and exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors then you want to check out Audible. My wife and I were just raving about this true crime audiobook that we read called Furious Hours. And then I've been raving about this book, Night of the Grizzlies, which I loved. Audio piques the imagination and it brings thrillers to life. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500 500. That's audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500 500. Yeah, I think in the Gita, it says like you're entitled to the labor, but not the fruits of the labor to go back to the, the thing you were saying earlier. And so, you know, at the core of Stoicism is this dichotomy of control. What's up to you? What's not up to you? You control if you do everything right, but you don't control if it rains. You don't control if they come down with this or that. You don't control if a coyote comes or a mountain lion comes or, uh, you know, you don't control what your neighbors do, you know, that for me, the country life thing, the animals I'm okay with, it's the, uh, you know, it's the other people who choose to live out in the country that tend to, to test my patience for the most part. Yeah. But I live in the people's Republic of Vermont. <laughs> you probably have it too. I mean, like, you know, I, I say this, the wonderful part about being in the country is you can do whatever you want. Uh, the worst part about living in the country is that everyone else can do whatever they want. And for some people, that means collecting, you know, uh, broken down cars in their front yard or burning their trash or shooting an AR-15 off in the morning. And, uh, you know, uh, that just goes with the territory and all you can do is accept it and uh, try not to loathe the people that you live next to. Right. <laughs> well, it has that passage in there about good neighbors, you know, uh, you know, good fencers make good neighbors, but you have to also cultivate that relationship as best you can. Um, and uh, hey, so. have you found that farming has made you a better philosopher and classicist or is it challenge? Is it is it fought for the same resources? Huh. Well, it certainly has uh, changed the tack I've uh, I'm taking in my my thinking and research and writing. So when I wrote that book, Plato's Pigs, that was the moment where I kind of put all the eggs in one basket. Up to that time, we've been farming for about 20 years. Up to that time, I had, I had kind of lived a double life, right? I was, I was classicist by day and farmer at home and, and never really thought about integrating, you know, them philosophically speaking or, or in terms of like, you know, worldview and I mean, I had thought about it, but I never thought about doing it professionally, like writing about it and being public about it. Uh, but with that book, I, I did merge the two. So I, I, I used my training and my aptitudes in for, you know, in classics and my experience in farming to come up, you know, with basically an argument that, you know, the, the West is not, I mean, basically the, the, the canonical literature of classics um, has a lot to say that speaks to us in, uh, in contemporary terms about sustainability and about holistic, you know, interconnections of, of things in nature and how we need to be a part of that. And um, so in that way, yeah, his, I think it has made me a better classicist because I think I'm more useful now. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think I, I, I actually think maybe that I, 
I feel like, you know, what I say and what I'm thinking and feeling about, you know, what I'm reading in the in these ancient texts matters because it's translatable. I mean, not, you know what I mean by that, you know, translatable sure. into into life choices, even into, you know, crazy, something as crazy as policy making, you know. Um, and um, so the book I'm writing now is, is kind of about that. And you'll like the title. It's called Secundum Naturam. And it's, uh, you know, according to nature. And, the, and the, the overarching argument of the book is that is that it's kind of like that Lucretius passage that, you know, um, uh, if if nature works this way, you know, as a closed loop dynamic system, then the economy should work that way, too. Right. Or and so should uh, the, the decisions that we make that, you know, within that you know, within the economy. So how are we going to how are we going to power the, the, the grid? Well, solar energy is a is makes sense. So does wind energy because it it involves that same principle that exists in nature of a closed loop dynamic system. So there's analogical thinking that can take you a, a long way because you know we have the technology to actually implement these things. Do we have the will? No, probably not. And do we have the kind of comedy uh, the, the kind of economy that can tolerate it? No, not yet, but we need it. Um, so anyway, but don't don't you think uh, I, I've got to imagine that you have a set of skills and a certain self-sufficiency that's probably uh, anomalous amongst your philosophical peers, right? That that again in the ancient world um, would have been it would have been the exact opposite. You know, like uh, Socrates is a soldier. Uh, Musonius Rufus is is a political advisor and uh, you know, does all these other things. Um, it is interesting how, as philosophy has become more and more specialized, I, I do feel like the philosopher, man or woman, has become more of a a sort of a uh, an academic figure than a sort of a real world person who is, in, unlike you, or, or sort of contrasting with you, not down in the earth, touching real things, doing real things in the real world. That's true. I mean, one one of one of your your guys. When I say your guys, a stoic sage, Cleanthes, um, you know, used to be a gardener. Yeah, he was he a was water a, carrier. Exactly, and a sometime a sometime a boxer. You know, so uh, they they did have life experience. I, you're probably familiar with Pierre Hadot. Um, yes, uh, philosophy as a way of life. Uh, you know, I I read that when it first came out in English translation, and I'm rereading it now. Some of it in in French because one I'm of my in, all time favorite books. Okay, well, it should be because yeah. uh, it was revolutionary, and I'm, I'm kind of I, I I read it back then, but now I'm rediscovering it. Um, I just love that because he, the argument that all ancient philosophy, even you know from the elites like Plato and Aristotle, was was all about how to live well, how to live a full, truthful, <laughs> you know, uh, life that is uh, in sync with the way the world really is. No holds barred, like uh, you know, whatever it takes to to reach that point. That's what ancient philosophy was all about. Um, yes, there are these petty arguments within it, whatever. But ultimately, that was the thrust of it. And um, so you're right; the ancients had it. It was a it was a lifestyle, a, a way of life, and not just uh, something taught in universities. Right? Well, it's like they all had. You said you have a day job. It's like. Uh... The Stoics all had day jobs, and then philosophy was the was the secondary practice, right? Even <laughs> in meditations, Marcus Aurelius talks about uh, how philosophy basically can't be your stepmother, 
philosophy has to be your real mother. And then you have this other thing that you do. But I, I saw, sort of saw it as a, a balancing act. You have your, your real world experience where you're interacting with real people and you're being challenged as a merchant or a soldier or a, a whatever. And then you also have your philosophical practice and the two are informing each other, just as you found that, oh, hey, my, my understanding of, of a farm and philosophy now creates real insights that can inform, you know, uh, policymakers and, you know, consumers and uh, fellow farmers, uh, because I, but, but either one of those independently would not have been as fruitful. Right. That, I, that's why I like the, the whole generation of like the people, you know, the World War One, uh, uh, you know, poets and, and a lot of the people who served, you know, uh, in either World War One, World War Two, that were, you know, people of persons of letters, you know, people yes. who were literary and, or philosophically inclined, you know, the Brits, especially. It, who? The Brits, especially that. Yes. It's like a whole generation of poets and, and writers. Exactly. And then there's just there's this it gives an authenticity to their work um, for me because of that life experience. I mean, it wasn't farming, but it was, yep. you know, it was a, a, a life or death kind of experience um, and it changed them and, uh, you know, sometimes harmed them. But it was um, there's something that gives that authenticity to me. I mean, Wittgenstein wrote the Tractatus while he was like in the trenches of World War One, for instance, um, even like go back a couple of generations. Rene Descartes wrote, uh, you know, the discourse on method when he was like serving as a um, mercenary in the Dutch army. And he was like locked himself in a room for some quiet time and to think about what's really important. And he writes the discourse on method. Um, so I think, I think uh, T. Uh, Lawrence was talking about um, how to translate the, the Odyssey or the Iliad, you have to have done you know, a variety of things to be able to speak to Odysseus's experience. Yeah, the sort of the philosopher adventurer is uh, an archetype that doesn't really exist as much anymore these days. Yeah, so you get Lawrence of Arabia quoting Themistius, you know, when he's on trial and <laughs> someone, or and then, you know, he, he carries Apuleius's golden ass in his saddlebag when he's out there, you know, fomenting the Arab revolt, you know. Anyway, that's a different generation, and it had its own yes. it had its own problems, no doubt about it. But there's there is something about the you know the the the, um, the vita contemplativa and the the vita uh, activa meshing that is really important, you know, now more than ever because we we're losing it. Um, what and and I don't remember the 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 Latin expression, but also the sort of sound body in a or sound mind in a strong body. The idea of like active body active mind is, is also, I think, something that you can lose if you just sit behind a desk all day. True. Main sauna in corpora sano. That's, um, you do. And um, what, what do we do? We do <laughs> sit behind a desk all day. What are we doing now? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so talk to me about living with accordance of nature, living in accordance with nature, because I feel like of all the stoic phrases that I hear people ask about the most and that I probably, if I'm answering it, feel like I'm on the shakiest ground. This is one of those things that is repeated incessantly amongst the philosophers. And it's like no one bothers to actually define what it is. Maybe it's just one of those things that gets lost, but what does it actually mean? All right, well, I'll, be on, I'll go out on shaky, shaky ground here too, on a limb. Um, so, well, it means many things, even in antiquity, it, it meant many things because, because nature is a slippery concept. 
Um, you know, it can mean so many different things and it's, 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 a, it's not a fixed entity that, you know, so, um, but like, I'll just give a couple of examples. So we talked about Lucretius before. So living according to nature for an Epicurean means um, that your ethics proceeds, proceed from your physics. So in other words, the, the ethical system that you have is based on an understanding of how the world is strung together and how it works physically, like no, so scientifically, we would say. Um, that's what the Epicurean, Epicureans meant by living according to nature. Um, you know, the Stoics had a different cosmology and a, and a different picture of how the universe was strung together, but they still had that same idea that, you know, your, your ethics should proceed from your, your physics. Uh, you know, they fudged it a little bit. I think they kind of adjusted their physics to, to fit the, their ethics, but they use this image, you're probably familiar with it, of the egg. So like, you know, stoic, stoic, the stoic philosophical system is like an egg. So you've got the outer uh, um, shell is logos, is like logic, but logic, not just like formal logic, but discourse as well, like just speaking. So uh, the arts of, the, of logos are the shell. The ethics is the white part, the albumen, and then the, the physics are the yoke. So, um, so what does it mean to live according to nature for a stoic? I have an idea. <laughs> I'm going to spring it on you now. So yeah, the, the concept of oikeosis um, in, in stoicism. Uh, our affinity or, for each other. Affinity for each other, but I'm going to I'm going to say it. Um, I'm going to be even more general than that. Our our affinity or our relationships to our environments, because uh, Stoic used this term, and many many of the examples that they give come from the animal kingdom. So an example is, um, you know, animals know what they're supposed to do by instinct. We say by instinct, um, and they 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 never they don't they don't veer from that. I mean, they're they're pretty consistent. Um, they have this instinctual urge to, to do the right thing according to their nature. We call it, uh, in modern scientific terms, it's called proprioception. They're aware of how what they're doing bodily, physically, in the environment that they occupy, whatever that is. Could be an amoeba, could be a, a deer. Um, humans, the Stoics said, uh, we, have a, we have a problem, and the problem is reason. Now, the problem is also a tool, but the fact that we have the noodle means that we can uh, deceive ourselves or we can make, we have, we have will, we have volition, we can choose the wrong course of action. So we have the capability of not living according to nature. And so therefore we need to fix it. And, and they had the whole solution of, you know, uh, getting, getting back to nature meant getting back to human nature where virtue was everything and rationality was the access point for for that 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 thing, so um, this notion, I, I actually kind of think it's like the first environmental philosophy, where they where they where they argue that um, human beings and animal human beings like animals need to stay within the bounds and the confines of what they were created for, for lack of a better word, what they are by nature, and so secundum naturam in that way of thinking is. Knowing, knowing your limits and knowing your bounds and, and knowing your proper reactions and actions and how all those uh, fit together with that environment. Um, so I, I don't know if that's, a, that's, that's, that's yeah. one answer to that. Um, so what's a modern application? Um, here's, here's what I think about that. You've heard of the concept of like biomimicry, right? 
where you know you invent Velcro from the way uh, like uh, seed pods stick on the you know, whatever that's called. I, I don't know the technical terminology, but Velcro was invented yeah. that way. And they, they invent all sorts of gadgets, you know, based on how things work in nature. Because I think, well, nature's got a good design; we can mimic that flight, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 this it's kind of like a form of biomimicry. So, as the world works, so should we model, you know, to the degree that we can, uh, the way human societies work or the way our interactions with others work on those sorts of relationships. How, how does so? I've I have been a little curious though. Then how does like um, how does living in accordance with nature bump into what what they call the naturalistic fallacy? Like just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's right, or just because it happens in nature doesn't mean that it's right. Right. No, that's no, that's true. Um, and I think the the Stoic answer to that would be that we have human beings have a soul for for one thing. Um, they believe that, and we have rationality, which is a component of that soul. So we, we have a, a dimension of experience. We also have rec recursive thought and, and consciousness. Um, so our, our interaction would be, would be different because um, than, than other species in nature for that reason. And so that we would have to define what was, uh, what was quote unquote natural for us um, factoring in those those elements as well. I, I think that would be what the what the Stoics would say about that. But um, but it's not so simplistic. It's just because it exists in nature. Go out and do likewise. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I don't think that that's what they're suggesting and recommending. And that's not what I'm thinking and suggesting and recommending too. There's something also qualitatively different about a human being. You know. You know. Uh, Animals don't write books about us. You know? <laughs> um, we write books about them. Um, there's there's something to that, but that's a bit the mystery of consciousness is something we're not going to solve that here today. <laughs> no, I mean one of the things I, I I think loosely connected to this that I I've always found the most compelling in some of the Stoic writings, particularly in Marcus Aurelius, who's you know supposedly this sort of dour, depressive guy. I've always loved the observations about nature, which which made me think he was much more agrarian or outdoorsy than we perhaps think. You know, he talks about the way that grain bends under its own weight, talks about the flecks of foam on a boar's mouth, the way that ripe olives fall from the tree. He clearly spent a lot of time outside looking very closely at things, being very present. And then there's a great phrase from Seneca where he says, you know, the whole world is a temple of the gods. The idea of the farm or life or the outdoors is this sort of, uh, temple, this magical place, kind of in the way that John Muir talks about it. I, I feel like we don't talk about that enough, particularly with the Stoics, that they, they they were in love with the natural world. Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, you know, for Marcus, I mean, he he, he wrote the meditations while he was in a tent, you know, on campaign in Dacia. So he was seeing plenty of the outdoors. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, And you're right. I mean, and both the Greeks and the Romans, they had great affection for, you know, their environs. Um, and, uh, and yeah, um, maybe you're right that we don't, we don't think about that enough from the, uh, from the Stoics. Um, Which is sort of going through the, I think 
you know, like the transcendentalist, it's sort of like you go outside and you really look at what nature is, the, the canvas of nature. You're sort of looking at the at the world through through the eyes of a poet or an artist. Um, again, the Stoics are supposed to be seen as these sort of depressive, uh, sort of uh, resigned figures. But I, to me, that seems very at odds with the the love of beauty that comes through in their philosophical writings. Yeah, I don't know. I think you're right about that. And um, and uh, and you know the Epicureans were were that way too, um, because the you know the school of Epicurus was called you know the Garden because that's where they first met. Um, and and that idea of you know spending time together um, in nature, uh, yeah, it's resonant. So. so, do you have donkeys? We have donkeys. How we many have, have you got? Just two. They're called. Uh, we, they're called Turks and Caicos because that's <laughs> that's where we'd rather be in in Vermont February. I I've got two donkeys also. I I bought one when someone was liquidating a petting zoo, which is about the saddest uh, Craigslist ad I've ever seen in my life. And then I bought another one from from for also from a lady on Craigslist, and uh, it, they're wonderful. They're like they're like big dumb dogs with a stronger opinion about how things should be. <laughs> That's a good, good, good description. Uh, ours came to us in a similar uh, way. We, they were uh, like hand me downs from people who were horse people who had these these animals, and they were moving to North Carolina, and they they couldn't take them with them. And um, and one of them actually was a therapy donkey, so it's like a certified trained therapy donkey. Um, that would be Turks. <laughs> and do you what do you use them for? For us, they, they just hang out with the cows and they keep away like coyotes and uh mountain well, lions and stuff. Now, have you verified that they actually do that? Well, so one day one of them came back all cut up, and uh the vet thinks that he he had he got in a scrape with a mountain lion or some something like that. We haven't lost anything to mountain lions, so it's hard to prove a negative, but uh it does seem like they uh they keep things away. You want to trade donkeys then? I have two of you. <laughs> Because the reason we got the donkeys were, were, were as for to be guard animals for the sheep. Yeah. Now, because we have one pasture that's about, you know, it's in, on our property, but it's like across the dead, uh, dead end dirt road that we live on up in the woods. And it's a big clearing up there. And uh, it's fenced in. But, you know, we always we, we lost some lambs, you know, two years in a row up there because of that, um, because of the I think the distance from the from the house. So we thought we'd get the donkeys to solve that problem. And they are they think. They are supercilious. They think they're better than the sheep. Yes. They don't want anything to do with them. So that's funny. They don't hang out with them. You know, wherever the sheep are, they they intentionally go somewhere else. You know, they like to be on their own. So, you know, I think we have two donkeys that aren't really serving their purpose, but I tell you, they're my favorite animals on the farm. They're so they're so sweet. And uh there's it's it's this weird thing because they're very sweet and nice. But you also get this sense that it's like they're still dangerous. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, like, uh, don't push them. Uh, it's like maybe a pit bull or something. Right. Well, they do kick. They can yeah. kick. Yeah. Yeah. But but yeah. You can't make them. It's like uh, it's like an egotistical person. The only way you can get them to do anything is to make them think it was their idea. That's a good way. That's that's correct. That's true. Um, I think they will teach you the farmer's patience more than any other animal, right? Um, because they 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 don't move, and they seem to have a way to like not move in a way that's even you know more grounded than even like a, a large 
bull or a cow. Yes. Have, it's like they, they just won't move. You can't even push them to get well, them started. I, I, I've always been like sometimes uh, I've told this story before, but, you know, you sort of you can come across a donkey. If the donkey doesn't know that you're there, you can just it'll just stand there for like an hour, like you'll not move. Like the, the stillness of them is yeah. uh, is something I've taken some philosophical lessons from the just sort of like the serene comfort with themselves and the uh, not just the total obliviousness to time or urgency or anything but what they feel like doing is kind of marvelous to watch. Yes, yes. Uh, well, that's why probably Eeyore is a donkey, which may be like a depressive one. Um, yes. <laughs> somehow has come to terms with the <laughs> the way the world works and the way it is and accepts it. <laughs> well, my my favorite uh, Stoicism story is related to donkeys. Again, we see the Stoics as uh, these very dour, uh, humorless figures. But supposedly, Chrysippus dies laughing at a donkey eating figs. Oh, that's a story I did not know. That's a that's a great one. Yeah, yeah. He's, sit, he's sitting on his front porch, and a donkey walks in and starts eating figs in his garden. And uh, apparently, Chrysippus said some joke like, does he need some wine to wash down those figs? And begins to laugh so hard at his own joke that he uh, shortly thereafter drops dead, <laughs> which is quite a way to go, I feel like. Well, there are a lot of donkeys around. You I mean you have many, many opportunities to see donkeys in ancient ancient Greece or Rome. Yeah. Well, they yeah, I mean, uh, I I feel like I'm dealing with that myself because so we got these we rescued these donkeys sort of late, and the, the vet told us they were it was too late to fix uh the male donkey that we got. It was already like six or seven years old. So we get like another donkey every 13 or so months, and uh, you can't keep them. So we're we feel like we're in this, they're not worth anything, as you know. So we're right. in this constant uh, uh, mode of trying to rehome a donkey about once every eighteen months. Uh, that's wow. been a it's been both a burden, but also kind of a wonderful way to connect with people because you're always like, hmm, I bet I could trick this person into becoming a donkey person, and that's the uh, that's our our journey. Too bad you're in Texas because I I can't tell you how many times we've gotten a call from somebody saying like, where did you get your donkeys from? We can't find one. We want one. Well, because, yeah, I, I think people do need them. Yeah. And then uh, although I guess like in, out in the West, there's just an enormous feral donkey population. Huh. And Hawaii, oh. too. Uh, you can see them just walking around in some of these uh, places like I guess in the, from the West, it's from the mines. You know, they they had them in the mines and then they just let them go. And now they're yeah. they're they're just there. And then in in Hawaii, you know, people just let them go on the islands. And now they've got a. Uh, a wild donkey population. Oh, amazing. Anyway, yeah, this, I like them. They're the best. They're the best. Um, let's see what else I wanted to ask you about, if there's anything else. Um, yeah, I guess uh, the, the last thing, just because it pertains to climate, and I do think it's important, um, how, where philosophically uh, do, uh, what do the philosophers have to teach us about this sort of moment of time that we're in where you know, years of neglecting or abusing the climate is coming back to haunt us. Uh, we're, we're sort of wrestling with not just our obligations, but I feel like we're also wrestling with this massive collective action problem, which is how do you do something about it that wasn't totally your fault, but it is now the problem of our time. So what, what do the philosophers have to teach us and what does farming have to teach us uh, as well? 
Huh. Well, there is a passage in the book, um, as you know, from Plato, and it, and it's not us us. It's kind of a uh, an outlier passage because it's not directly about farming, but what it is about, it's about the construction of an ideal society, and it's it's Socrates's first first attempt to say what 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 the ideal society would look like. And it's interesting. It, it, yeah, I kind of think of it as like he's engaging in playing Sim City, maybe you know, tongue in cheek, just a little bit. But I, I think he's also earnest. Where you know he says that societies come come together because of mutual need. You know, no one is self sufficient by themselves, so we need each other. And so that idea of cooperation is at the root of of city formation. Uh, and then he talks about how uh, how the, the people would live in this ideal city, and it would be an agrarian rustic community, um, ideally, and it would be a vegetarian community. Uh, it would be a community that was um, uh, self-supporting, you know, with, by, through cooperation amongst themselves. Um, it, it wouldn't, it, and the reason for that, it would, it would be happy, content with what it had within its, its territory, within its environs, because otherwise you would be encroaching on other people's property to get things that you want uh, or that, that you think that you need or you want. So uh, because the ideal society doesn't do that, there, there is no war. And because there's no war, there's no slaves. And Plato paints the picture. It sounds like, you know, Edward Hicks, Peaceable Kingdom, where people are, you know, they work by day, naked, out in the sun. And at night, you know, they, they sit by the fire, you know, and munch acorns and drink wine. And he says um, something to the effect, actually, let's see if I can get this close to right. He says, um, they, will, they will have sex with one another. They will, they will uh, you know, they'll mate and they'll, they'll, but they won't produce children beyond their means. He says that specifically. Um, and he says, they will ensure that they leave a life similar to the one that they've enjoyed for their progeny. So it's like got all the ingredients of Plato's like, Plato was such a genius, really. He, uh, you know, he, he understands like this this systemic view of how society works and how it how it needs to think about its future as much as its present, and that it has to live within limits. Um, so, you know, with climate change, well, if anything, that we we've exceeded limits uh, on every front, and the biosphere though is the ultimate limit. So, I mean. <laughs> We 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 are living within limits, but we're living as if there aren't that isn't there isn't that limit of the of the the biosphere, um, and I think you know somebody like Plato has a lot to teach us about that. The other thing about Plato that you just mentioned, like how to motivate people, how to get kind of collective action, you know his and his um analogy or his um homology between the the soul and the state that the Republic is big on, right? That the, the tripart soul is like equivalent to the tripart state and the cooperation amongst those, the proper cooperation amongst those three parts in both soul and state uh, need to be in order. And that's like the definition of justice. Um, all of that, I think, can speak to, you know, individual, um, maybe allegorically speak to it, but individual harmony uh, or just living or righteous living in the world, the kind of choices that you make, things that you do, how you view things. Do I need that new television? No, you don't. Um, and how we make collective decisions, which, you know, uh, we're just a, a collection collection of individuals formed by mutual need, according to Plato. So it, we could we could think about that um, as that homology between soul and state, personal action, 
and um, uh, civic action um, productively, I think. I mean, it's not a not one for one correspondence, but uh, we have to recognize, I think the recognition of that, that, homolo that homology is, is important. Yeah, Marcus Realis in Meditations talks about how what's bad for the hive is bad for the bee. I think he meant, you know, other individuals, but I also, the sense that the planet is our hive and that we owe an obligation to take care of it. And that this sort of idea of um, uh, leave it, leave it as good or better than you found it is the sort of inherent obligation that we have as citizens, but also as philosophers and uh, sort of students of, of wisdom and virtue. Like yeah. you can't, you can't abuse this thing and then hand the check to your children or grandchildren or, you know, literal or figurative, um, that, that that's an inherently unvirtuous thing to do. Right. Well, you, you're familiar with Heracles's, Heracles's Circles of Concern. Yes. And I think you had a guy on your program before, or he's written for you, um, uh, Kai Whiting. Yes. Mm -hmm. he, he's written, a, 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 he sent me a couple of years ago, a, a really terrific article, really, on applying Heracles's circles of concern, he actually had this nice diagram that he, he drew to show how that idea, that Stoic idea is perfectly translatable and, and uh, to the, the modern situation of, of resource use and allocation, how it all works. Um, and uh, so there you go. I think, the, I think the ancients do speak to that, that problem. They don't have the science to solve the problem, but the problem that we face is really not a scientific one. I mean, yeah, like if your if your neighbor was polluting your yard, you do something about it. And I think the idea of the circles of concern is how can you apply that same level of outrage isn't exactly a stoic word, but how can you how can you apply that same level of concern to some river that you'll never see in your life, or you know the protection of a tree that you won't live long enough to sit in the shade of? But if you expand the circles of control, you get there pretty quickly, and that's why sort of preserving and protecting the land and the resources, it, it, it really matters. And it's, it's a philosophical pursuit, not just some sort of social justice environmental pursuit. It's a philosophical pursuit. Right. And if you, and people could be convinced that you are connected to that tree on the other side of the world um, in a very real way, it, you would, you would care about it. Um, yeah. And if enough people feel that way, then maybe something will happen. I don't know. I, I hope I hope so. I certainly hope so. Uh, we've made so much progress uh, from the ancient world, as as we talked about. You know, whether let's say with the eradication of slavery, but there are certainly other things that two thousand years from now they're going to look back and be aghast at. And uh, I think we have an obligation to try to tackle those things as much as we can in our own time. Yep, indeed. Professor, this was amazing. I, I loved the book. I love the Princeton University Press series. I've read like a dozen of these now. They're all awesome. But I was very excited to see this one. And uh, it was an honor to have you on. Thanks for having me. The next one's about the cynics and that's coming out next fall. Well, I'd love to, I'd love to talk about that one too. It sounds good. Me too. Hey, it's Ryan. Thank you for listening to the Daily Stoic Podcast. I just wanted to say we so appreciate it. We love serving you. It's amazing to us that over 30 million people have downloaded these episodes in the couple years we've been doing it. It's an honor. Please spread the word, tell people about it. And this isn't to sell anything. I just wanted to say thank you.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Guy Raz's How I Built This is a podcast where each week he talks to the founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you hear these entrepreneurs really go into their story. And Guy is an incredible interviewer. He doesn't just dance around the surface. He has real questions because he himself is an entrepreneur. He's built this huge show and this huge company. In a recent episode, they talked to the founder of Liquid Death, that crazy water company that's become this billion dollar brand. Follow the show on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This Early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. And for a deep dive in daily business content, listen to Wondery V destination for business podcasts with shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, The Best One Yet, Business Movers, and many more. Wondery means business. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, T-Boy. This is Nick. This is Jack. And we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. 20 minutes each morning, you're going to feel brighter. We call it pop biz, don't we, Jack? Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies. Or you're going for that promotion at work. Or you just want to know the trends before your friends. Feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more, Wondery means business.